Hello, CMYK community, and welcome to another CMYK Talk podcast. My name is Matt, and we're jumping in after a week off. We had our Sabbath gathering last week, and so I hope in some ways that you find yourself to be rested and maybe a little better than you were a week ago because we did this spiritual practice of doing nothing. Uh, I think it's so good. So with that, though, that means... I got a week off, and so <laughs> there's a there's kind of a fire in my gut to come and uh, talk and bring some things to the table that I hope will um, introduce a better and more beautiful way for us to interact with the world, people, and stuff. And today we got a lot of ground to cover. This is one of those talks that I've been thinking about for a long, long time. So I'm so honored and excited that you are here. My name's Matt, by the way, if I haven't introduced myself and you are just listening in for the first time, welcome to this thing known, the CMY, known as the CMYK community. Uh, we're honored that you would uh, choose to listen in and hopefully connect around some of these concepts and ideas, wrestle with them together. Before we jump into it today, though, I want to mention that in a couple weeks, there's this thing uh, known as Easter Sunday, and this year it lands on April 1st, Sunday, April 1st. It's not... April Fool's Day as much as it is Easter Sunday. And so I want to point towards that because this means that we have one of our most favorite and I think significant gatherings as a community that's coming up on that Easter Sunday. Uh, We gather a little differently. We meet at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m., so our gathering schedule is a little different. And we gather at Art House Cinema in downtown Billings at 109 North 30th Street, And these gatherings are significant and unique because we think it's important for us to wrestle with this story and this idea of death, burial, and resurrection, and what it means for us here and now today in 2018. And so we've got some songwriters that are coming in, and they're kind of presenting their own uh, wrestling match celebration around these ideas and concepts. We've got people that are sharing stories about what this idea and concept of death, burial, and resurrection has looked in their lives, uh, look like in their life here and now today, because we think that that's where this story needs to have relevance and significance here in this moment. And so it is it is such a good gathering every year um and so i would hope that you would be able to schedule or uh, clear your schedule do what you can to join us uh at either 9:30 a.m. or 11 a.m. there's kid care at both of these gatherings we hope that you're thinking through maybe some friends family neighbors that you could just invite uh to come and be a part of it and our only hope in inviting co- people to come and be a part of it is we just think there's some things that matter and are significant for us to kind of revolve our time and energy around and conversations around. So maybe you're already going to lunch, and so this might give you some opportunity to have some conversations and talk about some things that might be important at lunch if you could. Or, if anything, there's just an incredible community of people that I just really want you to meet because I think they're really, really great. And so come and meet and hear some of their stories. Okay, we got, as I mentioned, a lot of ground to cover. And today we're continuing on in our series of talks that we're entitling Roots, Branches, and Fruits, or Why the Church is the way that it is today, how it grew into what it is today. Because church and Christianity can be a really weird, awkward, and uncomfortable thing for many of us. It can seem like we've lost the plot. It can seem like uh, there's something that's just not right at times about this thing. And for many of us, it can cause us to find an exit ramp and say, yeah, I'm done. I don't want anything to do with that. But for me, over the last few years, as I've 
personally wrestled with this idea and, con- of con- and concept of church and Christianity, one of the most helpful things for me has been to not only wrestle with where we are today, but to look at the past and to try and understand what are the roots of this thing and what did it grow up into? What are the branches that we see that kind of sprouted, sprouted throughout history? Because then it gives me some context and I get a point at it and go, oh, this is why this is important. Oh, this is why this is a thing. And this is why that is no longer a thing, even though that thing seems to be important. It just gives some good meaning and purpose behind it for me that I can interpret and see what's happening here and now in 2018 with a different kind of lens. And we call it Roots, Branches, and Fruit because there's some good fruit, possibly, maybe, but then there's also some bad fruit that has come from this thing called church and religion and Christianity. And so to be able to point at that and say, that's just bad fruit, that's not okay, that's not the way that this should be, there's nothing good, beautiful, or beautiful about that. And today, um, we're talking about, I think, um, what has been more helpful than most things for me in our current context, uh, to be able to point at, oh, this is why we are where we are, and to maybe give, hopefully, some better ways that this could be, better ways that I could be in the midst of this kind of really messy thing called church. So to talk about it, uh, we got to talk about ice cream. (laughs) Because ice cream is this thing that I think most of you listening to this, and obviously there are interesting people in the world, but if I were to say, hey, we're starting a club of people who love ice cream, I think most of us would agree that that's a pretty easy club to manage on some levels because you can find a lot of people that like ice cream. And there's a lot of people that, you know, you could get together and sing some songs about ice cream. You could get together and talk about how beautiful and awesome and amazing ice cream is and just the way that it hits your lips and the way that it melts. It's just so good on so many levels. So ice cream is this idea that I think most of humanity, if you've tried it and if you're honest... You can go, yeah, ice cream, I'm in. I'm a part of that club. But as you can imagine, as this first congregation of ice cream lovers starts to gather on a regular basis and you start talking about your love and passion of ice cream, it becomes quickly apparent that there are different kinds of ice cream in the world. And there are people that are showing up with their unique passions and interests for what makes ice cream Good. You could go to an ice cream shop and everybody potentially would have a different idea for the best way to celebrate, talk about, and enjoy ice cream. Because there are people in the world that would show up and all they would want to do is interact with, taste, and enjoy this thing known as vanilla ice cream. They're kind of the plain Janes of the congregation, if you will. They're the kind of Barry Manilow type of people. (laughs) They're not looking for anything fancy or anything crazy or anything out there. Just give me what's been around for a long time because this is what's good. Just plain vanilla. Don't put anything on it. Don't add anything. That's what makes ice cream good. And then there are other people that say, well, it, it, it can be plain, but it needs to be something like chocolate. Chocolate ice cream, that's the way to go. That's what you need. And then there are others that want to throw ingredients into it. So you've got people that would say, no, if you're going to do ice cream, if you really want the best experience and celebration of ice cream, it's got to be cookie dough or it's got to be cookies and cream. Or for some people, they say, nope, 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 ice cream. It's got to be mint chocolate chip. That is what 
matters. That's what's significant. We've got to have more mint chocolate chip as a part of this congregation. And then there are the really crazy out there people. Like there are truly people in the world, you guys, that if they had their choice and if they were looking at all of the options, they would show up and they would say, bubble gum ice cream. What? Like, that's a thing. And, and people, they want to have ice cream, but yet have this consistent chewing thing that's going on in their mouth while they're trying to enjoy ice cream. I don't get it. I mean, they're the people that maybe they should be with the kids. They're looking for a toy to come with their ice cream, maybe. I don't know. But there are people that say, if you want the best and the truest representation of what makes ice cream awesome, it's got to be bubblegum. And then there are those individuals that don't like moose tracks. Come on. You don't like moose tracks? The the greatest ice cream on planet Earth? You're not a fan? You're not into it? You don't want more of that? And quickly, no matter what the thing is, no matter how passionate or awesome a general consensus towards something is about ice cream, that we're all on board with our love of this thing, you can see, and we experience it on a regular basis, that everybody has a tendency to bring their unique style, flavor, desire, and hopes for what ice cream should be. And so quickly within this congregation of ice cream lovers, there becomes these different sects and groups of people, communities within a community that see things differently. And so you got to figure that out. Do we got to just split out the bubblegum lovers? Like, do they just need to be their own thing? Because I don't know if they're going to work here. The, the people that don't like moose tracks, really, we're going to let them in? They get to be a part of this even though they don't like moose tracks? I thought this was about ice cream and moose tracks is the best kind of ice cream, right? And very quickly, it becomes apparent that no matter how general the consensus no matter how passionate the love is for the idea and the concept, our unique intricacies as humanity starts to show through very quickly. The church 2,000 years ago was founded on, was seen as a communities of people that were gathering together around a general love, passion, and dream around the teachings and the life, death, and resurrection of this man, Jesus, and the work of Christ. And this was something that you could get communities of people under this umbrella of belief and idea. Yes, it's about Jesus. Yes, it's about this loving, passionate work of God on planet Earth. Yes, yes, yes. But what we see right out of the gates is that very quickly, the unique intricacies and differences about how we're to go about this love and passion of Christ starts to show through. Because there are people that show up, and when we talk about, okay, we are here for Christ, yes, 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 yes. There are people that start to bring different ideas of, well, when we talk about Christ, though, what do we mean, and who was this man Jesus? Was he just a man? Was he just a good teacher? Was he God? Is there some kind of in-between for those things? What does this look like? There's intricacies around this idea of a loving spirit of God that is here and present in this moment. Is it a part of our lives? Is he not a part of our lives? Is he just out there somewhere? Is he intimately involved? What does this mean? And everybody has their idea. We see that there's wrestling matches as people would gather together 
just like ice cream of people talking about, well, what, what are, what's going to be okay and what's not going to be okay? How should our gatherings be conducted? There's conversations very quickly out of the gates within Christianity and church about, okay, women and how, what kind of role do women play within this community? There's conversations and arguments, discussions about how a church and a community should be structured and led and what to do with problem people in the community. There are unique intricacies that everybody's bringing, saying this is the way that it should be, and someone else stands up and says, no, 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 no. If we're going to be honest about what's better and what's most significant, it's got to be this. And this is just what we see in the New Testament. The first 50, 100 years of the church, this is, these are the kinds of conversations, to debates. These are the kinds of conflicts we see the church starting to wrestle with. Yes, there's this general consensus about the, the beauty and the significance of the person of Jesus Christ, but what does that mean and how does that actually play out in the midst of all these different ideas? And what we see is that the church, for the most part, is able to reconcile these differences, these opinions and thoughts, <clears throat> in such a way that it's continued to find itself under a single banner, the single umbrella of we are for this message and teaching and work of Christ, the divine on planet earth. But something happens in 1054, a thousand years into this story. And it's this moment in church history that's known as the Great Schism. It's this place in time where people with differing beliefs and different ideas can no longer do this thing together anymore. And it's known as the Great Schism because they find themselves in two major groups. There is the East that has their thoughts, their beliefs, their ideas, what they think really matters and is significant in this work of Christ. And there is the West and what they think matters. And what takes place is the East says to the West, you're no longer a part of this church. And the West says to the East, you're no longer a part of this church. And before we know it, we, rather than one unified church, we have two. The East becomes Eastern Orthodox Greek Orthodox, and the West becomes the Roman Catholic Church. It's this split, because we live in a world that no matter how passionate or excited you are in gathering groups of people, when there's multiple people in the room, everybody's got a different opinion, idea, and belief. And the reason we got to talk about this week is because this great schism is something that starts a thousand years ago in our history, and it starts to grow into this incredible branch that when we look at what church is today, this is a part of this idea of church because we will always and always do have to interact with people that believe and think differently than us. So what do you do when that takes place? Well, the Great Schism invited two different options. The first thing that we see happen within the Great Schism is when you find someone that thinks or believes differently than you, then the work is to try and convert them. In a world that might see things differently, you've got to convert the world to your opinion, your ideas, and beliefs. This is something that we all do. Wherever you are and whatever you're doing right now, you sit or stand or walk, whatever's happening in that, in that place with a set of ideals and ideas about how things should be. And in your beliefs and in your ideas, the fundamental part of you as a human being believes that you are right. And so anybody that thinks differently than you, they 
are wrong. And so the work of converting someone is trying to get that person, those differing beliefs and ideas over to your side that they would agree with you. Why? Because you've got the best ideas. You've got the best and truest beliefs. I love the way Anne Lamont says it. She says, everybody thinks their opinion is the right one. If they didn't, they'd get a new one. This is just a part of our humanity. Outside of Christianity, this is just what it means to be human, that whatever you think, our tendency is to believe that that is the right, true thought. This takes place in politics. This takes place in our work world. This takes place in our relationships. I can't tell you the number of conversations, arguments that I have on a regular basis, and the, the thing that the whole conversation and argument revolves around is who's right. Because in that conversation and argument, I know that I know that I know that I'm right. And so the work of me in that conversation and argument is trying to get that person, whatever they think and believe, over to my side to see the light, to see the truth. And that is Matt Blakesley. He's right in the midst of this. We are trying to convert the world. Just a few days ago, I had mentioned to my wife, through a text, and it asked, hey, there's some friends that are going to come over to our house. Is that okay? And she replied promptly and said, yeah, that's fine. And, and you know, it was going to be great. Good night. So a couple days later, when it's the day of the friends coming over that evening, I just got up from the couch. It was a couple hours before they were going to be there. And I said, I should probably start cleaning the house. And she looked at me and she go, why do you need to clean the house? I said, well, because I've got friends coming over. She said, What? they're not coming over here. And I said, yeah, I told you that. I asked you, is it okay if I have friends come over on this night? She said, you, you asked if you could hang out with friends, but you didn't say or mention that they were coming over here. And in that moment, there was this knee-jerk reaction, this thing in me that I didn't have to think about. It's just intuitive to my humanity that went down this path of trying to prove and show my wife you're wrong and I'm right, because there's no way that I'm in that wrong camp. I know that I know that I know that I'm right. And so we go back and forth, back and forth. And I honestly, I use the statement in the phrase, babe, I'm I'm sorry, because I'm trying to bring empathy right. I'm sorry that you're wrong, (laughs) because I just knew that I was wrong. And it devolved to this place where many of my arguments and conversations with my wife can go sometimes. It's us pulling out our phones and looking at the text text threads to see what was actually spoken. And so we pull out the phones and we're looking and I know I'm going to see this text and it's going to prove me to be right and she's going to feel awful and she's going to be converted over to the Matt Blakesley camp and know that I'm always right in what's being communicated. And we start reading the texts and it goes like this, hey babe, can I hang out with some friends on Thursday night? And she responds and said, yes. And that was it. There was no mention of can it be at our house? And even then, even in that moment, there was this part of me that thought, yeah, but I think I called her. I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure that like I had a conversation with her. I was talking about how beautiful she was that day and I just threw it in there and she said it was fine. Like I know that I'm not in the wrong. Our tendency as human beings is to always start from the place of I'm right. Whether that's in an argument, whether that's your belief, your interpretation of the Bible, your politics, your ideals and hopes for the world. And so when it comes to interacting with people outside of those beliefs and ideals, 
our first work is to try and convert them. And this is what we see happen in the Great Convergence. They're working hard. The East is trying to convert the West and say, hey, you've got to come on board with what we think and what we believe is most important. And the West is trying to do the same. And so we have this branch where we're just simply trying to convert people to our way of thinking because we know that we know that we know that we are right. But what happens when you can't convert them? And this is where this great schism really starts to grow. Because sometimes you're not going to be able to get someone into your camp. And it's in that moment that we see this step of, if I can't convert the world, I will create my own world. The East and West could no longer work together. They could no longer coexist. And so this great schism sees them starting to put up barriers and walls and push any ideas, thoughts, or beliefs that are outside of what they think is best and what they think is important. You push them to the outskirts and you start to insulate yourself so that you are only dealing with and interacting with your beliefs, your ideas, and what you think is right. You're diminishing their power and influence, and you're creating controlled spaces that reflect the world that you want to see. If we can't convert them, we'll just create our own isolated world. And this is what church has become for the last thousand years. Spaces where we have an idea and a belief And there might be things out there that would disagree with that, but the church, these communities are spaces where we all believe the same things, think the same things. We talk the same way. We don't use that language. We use this kind of language. We dress the same way. We listen to the same kinds of music and we interact with the same kinds of media and TV shows and music and we reject, we push out the things that we disagree with. And this is just church. For many of us, we know what it's like to be a part of a faith community. And you value it, you evaluate how good a talk was. So many sermons today are the same three points that we've heard our entire life. But people The church has a tendency to continue to celebrate and say, this is good. Why? Because I already agree with it and I already believe it. And so this is good. We've created this insulated, safe, controlled environment. And this is what we're supposed to do. And a bad sermon is one where someone says something that we disagree with. This is what the great schism has created. We have to work to convert the world and we have to work to create our own world. And so the question is, what's what's the outcome of all of this? What's the goal and the point of all of this? We've created this idea that church and Christianity is to create utopias for ourselves. That the world is most beautiful when it reflects me everywhere where everyone lives, thinks, acts, and believes like me. This is what winning looks like in the church world. And so we've got to continue to convert, and we've got to continue to create our own world because utopia is just around the corner. We've got to get there. And the question for me, is this a good outcome? Is this really what 
should be happening. I think we can all understand that we live in a world that it's not just religious belief, but no matter what the concept or idea is, because of connected culture and because of the information age, whatever your beliefs and whatever your thoughts are on anything, we live in a world where you and I can go and find stats, data, research, articles, conversations that continue to affirm what we already believe. And so we live in a world, if our goal is to create a utopia for ourselves, we can make that happen pretty easily. And it's not just within the religious context. We see it happen, yes, that there are people that think and believe that God and the Bible are everything. Everything comes back to God in the Bible. And they have, again, research, stats, data. They can bring scientists into the room. They can bring historians into the room. They can all point to why they know that they know that they know that they are right, and this is the best way to do it. And you can surround yourself with that kind of thinking and in this place feel like, I know that I know that I know this is good. This is the utopia. And everybody that believes differently is on the outside. They don't have what's good. So you can have that side. But then we all know that you can be in this place of God, not, I don't know, not sure, <laughs> maybe not a thing. And the Bible, just an old ancient book of ideas and myths and stories that really don't matter. Why do we continue to revolve around it? And just like the other side, this side can say, I've got stats and data and research. I've got historians. I've got scientists that can affirm this belief that God is not really much or anything at all, and that the Bible is simply this old, archaic book, and you have these two silos that continue to simply embed deeper and deeper and deeper into what they think, because we live in the information age and connected culture. We live in a world where racism can be this thing. You can have one camp that says racism is a reality in our country and culture today. And there are things happening that we must address, that we must talk about and point at, because this is something that continues to shape our culture in negative ways. And here's data, research, stats, and then you can have somebody that says racism, not a thing. And here's research, data, stats, and for you to talk about it and point at it just makes it an issue even more. And so you've got to stop that. And two sides that continue to grow and push towards converting the world and creating a utopia for themselves. You can have one camp that says Republicans are liars. They're just the worst, and you can have another, and they have all these reasons in history, and then you have the other side saying Democrats are evil, and all the problems and brokenness that are happening in our country and in the world comes and stems from that, and here's how I know that I know that I know that this is true. You can have a side that says guns are dangerous, and we've got to do a better job of regulating because of the damage that comes from them. And here's all the reasons why it's thought out. And then you can have another camp that says guns are one of the greatest signs of freedom and protection. And here's all the reasons, stats, and data why we've got to have more guns. The truth is we live in a world that whatever side you land on, you already have found an echo chamber that completely agrees with what you already think. So then that leads me to ask, is this a good thing? If this is what winning looks like, whether it's in church, or within politics, within life, is this really a good thing? And here's what I found in the midst of that. As we continue to create silos and echo chambers for ourselves, what we know is that our brain has a tendency 
to be attracted to the things that we already agree with. It's this thing known, that, known as cognitive easing. You see, our brains, they don't like to work hard if they don't have to work hard. So things that we've already thought through and processed and made a decision on, if we can revolve our lives around those kinds of things, then it's like candy to our brains. And anytime we come across an article or an idea or a podcast or a relationship where this person agrees with me, it's this beautiful, pleasure-inducing candy to our brains that we get so excited. And so we want more and more and more of it because our brains don't want to have to wrestle with what if I'm wrong. We'd rather deal with what it is that we already believe. And so we find ourselves just going after more and more and more of these silos and echo chambers believing what we already believe. On top of that, there's this another, another effect known as the mere exposure effect that happens with our brains. And it's this idea that the more your brain interacts with something, the more information it interacts with around a certain idea, the more our brains have a tendency to believe and see that thing as true and factual. And it doesn't matter if that thing is actually true or factual at all. What matters is that our brain continues to interact with it, continues to read about it, continues to hear about it and talk about it. And it's in that work that it starts to solidify as concrete in our heads that we know that we know that we know something because that's just what our brains naturally do. So in a world where we're just trying to convert and we're just trying to create a world for ourselves, the tendency is for us to just revolve around what we already think and to potentially find ourselves just digging deeper into things that maybe have no truth, have no relevance or significance at all, but we're just digging deeper and our brains are eating it up like candy and believing it to be factual and true, whether or not that's actually the case. The other outcome of this thing known as the Great Schism is that we have this split East and West, there's now two major denominations within the church. That was a thousand years ago. And what we've seen is over and over and over again, people have tried to convert, and if they can't convert, they're going to create their own world. And it's in that work that here in 2018, there are over 33,000 distinct denominations of Christianity. 33,000 times where people have been able, not been able to agree and had to part ways and say, we've got to go and do our own thing. Because if we can't convert, we're going to create our own world. So we have 33,000 different worlds being created just within Christianity alone. The outcome of this convert or create your own world, it leads to the crusades, of people going and trying to convert those outside of Christianity. If you don't convert, we're going to kill you because we're creating our utopia. The outcome is this thing known as the United States of America because there were pilgrims that felt oppressed. And so they came to the States before they were the States. They came here trying to create this kind of utopia that America's roots are found in this kind of work. The outcome is what we're seeing happen today, where when someone posts something or says something that you don't like, our response is to unfollow, unfriend, to stop hanging out with, to stop listening to. I'm going to go to a new church. I'm going to stop doing this whole faith and belief thing. I'm just done. The outcome of this kind of work 
is fighting, war, separation, rejection, pain, and very little, if any, kind of unity. Because no matter what the concept, whether it's ice cream or whether it's the person of Jesus, everybody brings their beliefs to the table and everybody thinks that they're right. And so we have this thing known as the Great Schism that's grown and grown and grown, and now we have this thing called church. Is this the way that it should be? As much as this is our history, and as much as this points to why, for me, why the world is the way that it is today, whether it's politically or religiously, is this really what we've got? That you and I are to spend our lives trying to convert our family to our side of thinking, convert our friends, convert the world, and where we can't, we simply push them to the outside so we can create our own utopia. Is this all we got? Or is there potentially a third way? I think what we need to see if there's this third way is that for us to live in this space of trying to convert or trying to create our own world, this always is us taking a position of power over whatever the other ideas and beliefs are. That we, again, think that we're right, and so we stand in the seat of power and look down upon whoever that person is, and our job and our goal is to be this person of significance and influence and power that's speaking into the life of this broken person that is thinking and believing wrong. And so this is how we've always approached the world, particularly as the church, that we are in this seat and this place of power. But there's this third way that's introduced It's introduced within the life of Christ and then wrestled with in the early writings of the church. And I find it fascinating the way it's talked about in the text of Philippians chapter 2. And this is potentially a third way. Philippians 2 verse 3 says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death on the cross, to to the point of death, even death on the cross. A cross. This is not a seat of power overbearing, looking down upon somebody, but it's actually what's happening with this picture. It's reversing the table and saying, I will be in the place in the seat of weakness. I will be in this place where I am here to serve and give what I have. And it's in this role, verse 9, the writer says, Therefore, because of this work, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The invitation of this third way, the invitation of Christ and the church, I believe, is one where we don't work to convert and we don't work to create our own world. We work to find ourselves in a place, not of power, but of weakness to hear and listen 
to work to understand whatever that person is and whatever's going on. I love the way uh, one of my favorite authors, philosophers, his name is Peter Rollins, talks about it in his incredible book, The Idolatry of God. If you're looking for something to read, man, go pick this up. But Peter Rollins says this about this new third way. He says, when I approach the other, I approach them from a higher position, deciding whether to agree or disagree with them in relation to my already established beliefs and practices. We are thus looking down upon their tradition, even when we affirm it, for we are affirming it only insofar as it aligns with our own. There is, however, a different way of approaching the other. This different approach involves placing ourselves beneath them in the sense of allowing their views to challenge and unsettle our own. And one of the ways that this can be done is through literalistic listening. In literalistic listening, we take careful note of everything the other says from their position instead of quickly interpreting it in relation to our own position. Instead of a monologue shared by two people, it can then become a genuine dialogue in the sense of two different positions meeting in such a way as to generate a potentially transformative conversation for both parties. Instead of approaching those with different beliefs and practices from a position of strength, in which we simply engage in the act of agreement or disagreement, which means comparing the other in relation to our own pre-established horizon, literalistic listening asks us to approach from a position of weakness. It means that we don't simply look at the other through our own eyes, but we attempt to look at ourselves through the eyes of the other. This, according to Philippians, is the work, the invitation, and the life of Christ to be found in the church. Not the bad fruit of a great schism, but the potential for you and I to find ourselves in the place, not of strength and power over everybody because we know that we know that we know, but to put ourselves in a position of weakness where we work to listen and understand and hear And this is absolutely frustrating for so many of us because we want to win. We want to know that we are right and we want to convert or we want to create our own world. This is our humanity coming through, but there is a better way. And whether it's in religion or politics or family, whatever it is, for us to find ourselves in this place of weakness. In other words, we don't fight to be right. We listen as we might be wrong. I believe that this work is some of the most profound and powerful work that we can do in our current cultural state. No matter what the case, we always interact with people that believe differently than us. So for us to go through the work and process of actually embodying the life of Christ and being in a place of weakness to actually hear and listen and not try to prove ourselves right, but to listen as if we might be wrong. This work is something that I believe it shows the value and significance of that person. It doesn't make them right, but it shows that they matter. And it shows that their voice matters, their thoughts matter. And we're going to actually listen and hear as if what they said says has weight. And to do this means that we don't just listen, waiting for our turn to talk and have the platform so we can just take them down. It's not a debate. This is a third way where we find ourselves in this place and position. 
Because the outcome of this, rather than creating a utopia for ourselves, and rather than creating more and more divisions and more and more silos, the outcome of it is that, yes, we might not change the other person, which is pretty impossible for us to do. We can't change others. As difficult as that is to hear, we can't do that. But what we can do is take this position of weakness, work to listen and hear and learn. And in that, we change. I, Matt Blakesley, become a more loving, empathetic, thoughtful person. I become more like Christ. And what I believe is that my home, my workplace, this city becomes a more beautiful, Christ-like kind of space because of the work that I'm choosing to do. I might not be changing anyone's mind, but I myself am becoming a more beautiful person. This is the third way. The Great Schism has grown up into something that's pretty ugly in a lot of ways, and we're seeing the fruits of that in our culture on so many levels. But the invitation of Christ is right here and right now for you and for me to take this third way, this position of weakness, and to ask yourself the question, can I be wrong? Can I actually have a conversation and come from this place and position of being wrong rather than the knee-jerk reaction of I'm right and I know that I'm right? To ask ourselves the question, have you actually listened to the other side? Not read an article, not seen something on the news, but sat with somebody and worked hard to listen and take that seat of weakness and work hard to understand as if you might be wrong and hear why and ask questions to try and go as deep as you can to understand all the intricacies because that person matters. Because this invitation of Christ and the work of the church is for us as human beings to become more loving, empathetic, beautiful people. And so is that happening in your life? Or are you simply finding yourself more and more siloed in your thoughts and beliefs? Are you finding yourself just creating more and more of a utopia for yourself and feeding more and more candy to your brain? And no matter what it is, because you interact with it all the time, you, you just know that you know that you know that you're right. It's my hope that I, as Matt Blakesley, will continue to grow into this work of Christ and not find myself in this place that the Great Schism invites us into of convert and create my own world. But to actually see this third way of the life of Christ found here and now in the way that I choose to interact with whoever they are and whatever they believe, because I could be wrong. I love you, and I hope you have... An incredible week. We will be back next week as we continue on in this series.